Hey, we're, we're starting a new series this week. Uh, the last five, six weeks, we've been going through new nets, new year, new nets, excuse me. And um, today we're starting off Community 101. And <clears throat> the reality is that the new year, new nets idea is actually going to carry over into what we're talking about with community and stuff. So if you remember, our premise basically was this, that to effectively cast nets, you know, like fishers of men that we are, and in order to effectively cast nets, we need to be intentional about how we mend our nets. And the reality is that nets and knots, all these kinds of things, they're relational in, na- in nature. Um, the last four or five weeks, we've been looking at how how to strengthen our vertical relationship with God. How to strengthen that knot. We've been asking those really honest questions. How is your knot with God? And this, uh, this week and the next few, we're going to be asking the question, how are the other knots? What other knots are you talking about? Not, not just uh, our vertical connection and relationship, but how are our horizontal connections and relationships? That's what we're looking at over the next few weeks. Community 101. Before we dive in, Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we're going to your word because we are confident that you're the God who speaks. Right from the opening page of scripture, you're the God who speaks. And Lord, just like creation itself was responsive to your voice, we want our hearts to be responsive to the living word of God today. We're asking that you would gift us with the presence of your Holy Spirit, the one that you said is our counselor, our comforter, the one who guides us into all truth. And Lord, we're longing not just for truth as a proposition, we're longing for truth as the person, Jesus Christ. Would you please lead us to see Jesus in this word today? Thank you. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. Amen. Go with me, if you have your Bibles, to John chapter 13. We're going to kind of set the stage here for this series, um, starting in the book of John, and then we'll eventually get to the book of Acts. So John chapter 13, if you have your Bible, we're going to verses 34 and 35. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. So I was doing a little homework the other day, and just uh, I, I, I Bible searched for all the times in the New Testament scriptures where there is a command regarding how to deal with one another. Have you heard of this? One another, that phrase, one another. There's 38, 38 distinct verses that, that have a, an imperative behind it, a command about how to do this for one another, do this for one another, do this towards one another, or with one another. And of the 38, I believe that here in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, is probably the most repeated of those imperatives, okay? And, and I would say that it's actually the, the overarching imperative, the overarching command. If you're there, say amen. Alright, John chapter 13, red letters in my Bible. This is the upper room experience. Jesus has just washed the disciples' stinky, dirty feet, and, uh, and He has shown them that He's loving them to the end. And in John chapter 13, starting in verse 34, He says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That you also do what? Love one another. Verse 35, by this, all will know that you are who? My disciples. If, what's the condition? 
if you have love for one another. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard or read this before? Yeah? This is a, a, I mean, Jesus says it's a new commandment, um, and there is a distinct newness to this. Not so much new that, oh, we should actually love each other? No, that's not the new part. The new part is love one another as I have loved you. That was distinct. That was something they hadn't seen before. In that immediate context, they just saw the king of the universe kneeling before them, washing their feet, right? Love one another as I have loved you. Just a few chapters later, actually, let's just kind of qualify this even more. Chapter 15. Now they've moved from the upper room. They're walking through some vineyards. And Jesus is looking at vines here and drawing this this amazing comparison to what it's like to be in relationship with Him. But then down in verse 12. I'll start in verse 11 because that's cool too. It says, verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, verse 12, that you love one another, how? As I have loved you. Verse 13, here it is. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus says, love one another, love one another, love one another. How? As I have loved you. Well, what does that look like? It looks like this, right? He lays down his life for his friends. And this is something that John, he's recording it here in his gospel. But in 1 John 3.16, and I, I'm not misspeaking here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And what's the natural response? It's a response of reflecting that kind of love. And we, the Bible says, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I mean, this is the kind of love God has for us. Uh, Paul takes this up in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How did Jesus love us? He didn't just love us in word. He loved us demonstrably, in action. Not just in word, but also in deed. He laid down His life for us. He gave Himself for us. This is how He loved us. Demonstrably, tangibly, sacrificially. And Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. You're asking me to love like that? (laughs) No, he's not asking. He's commanding. (laughs) Right? He wants us to love like that. Yes, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. Wives, love your husbands as I have loved you. This is what Jesus is asking. Parents, love your children as I have loved you. Children, love your parents as I have loved you. Children, love your siblings as I have loved you. Right? Human beings, love your neighbor as I have loved you. Man, that's a command. And you're thinking, this is, this is beyond me. Of course it's beyond you. It's God's command, which means it's His promise. Right? This is God's mission for us. I believe that God is on a mission to fulfill this miracle in you and I. That we would be reflectors and extenders and sharers of love like Jesus. That is a miracle that God longs to accomplish in us. When I was in high school, I... um, 
got in this habit of putting these quotes, inspiring quotes, in my locker, inside my high school locker. And um, it was probably around my junior, I think it was my senior year in high school that someone introduced me to this amazing book called The Desire of Ages. And I, I found this amazing statement in there, and I put it in my locker. I drew, like, I don't know, I was so inspired by it. I was like, getting all artistic about it. Anyways, I'm going to share it with you here. It says this, Love to man is the earthward manifestation of the love of God. All right, just, just think about this. So we're thinking about love towards each other. It's a reflection or an earthward manifestation of the love of God. It was to implant this love to make us children of one family that the King of glory became one with us. And when his parting words are fulfilled, what parting words are we talking? We're actually quoting from John fifteen twelve here in Desire of Ages. When we love the world as he loved it, then for us, His mission is accomplished. Do you know what mission God is on right now? He is on a mission to transform our hearts to reflect the love of God. Amen. That's His mission. If He had a mission statement, He's like, uh, love one another as I have loved you. That's my mission for them. Okay. Then for us, His mission is accomplished. We are fitted for heaven. Why? For we have heaven in our hearts. <coughs> Wouldn't you draw something and put it in your locker too? This is beautiful. It's powerful. How is that possible? That's what we want to explore over the next week or so. How can we not get in the way of God accomplishing His mission for us in our lives? How can we actually be a part of of loving the world as He loved it? That's what we want to explore over the next week or so. And one thing is for sure, His command is a promise. He wouldn't command us to do something that He Himself wouldn't fulfill in our lives. The other thing that we know for sure is we know its result. Back in chapter 13, we, we know the result of this kind of love. It says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, by you loving one another, just like I loved you, by this, what's the result? All will know that you are my disciples. In other words, others will know that we follow Jesus. Others will see a match between the message and the messengers. Others will see that we share in the life of Christ, that we live out the love of Jesus when it's revealed in the quality of our relationships and how we love one another. Do we realize how big of a deal this is? This simple command, love one another. It's a simple command. We say it very easily, but do we realize how big of a deal this is? By this, the fulfillment of this, everyone on planet Earth can tangibly see who we follow and who it is that we love. Without this practical demonstration, I would submit, without this practical demonstration of the message in our lives, the impact of the message in others' lives will always fall flat. The revelation of Jesus, whether we know it or not, is not just something people need to read about or hear about. (laughs) It's something people need to see and know and feel. Amen. The revelation of Jesus, yes, we can, we can share about it, we can proclaim about it, we can write about it so that people can read it and hear it, but they need to see it and feel it. They need to see it and feel it. Why? Because it's the revelation of Jesus. And that's why the Word wasn't content just to be be the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He wanted to show it. 
Jesus wasn't content with just telling it. He wanted to show and tell. That's why Jesus became one with us. That's why Jesus prayed about this so much, so fervently in John chapter 17. So you're in John 15. Maybe you went back with me to 13. Go with me to John 17. John chapter 17. Just hours before his betrayal, his trial, his eventual crucifixion. Jesus is found praying. John somehow stays awake long enough to hear it. He hears what Jesus is praying about. And in John 17, one of the things he's praying about is not just the glory of God, and not just the 12 disciples that he has with with him right there, or I guess by that time, 11 disciples. But he's also praying for the disciples that those would make. He's praying for you and me. Did you realize that Jesus prayed for you and me while he was here on this earth? And in John 17... I'm going to start in verse 20. It says this, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What's he praying for us about? That they all may be, what's the next word? One. That they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, And I in you. That one idea used for the very first time in the Greek version of the the Old Testament is used in Genesis chapter 2. When the man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Right? That's a oneness, a unity that is intimate and deep. And Jesus is praying for believers, you and me, that we all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. In other words, a oneness that not just reflects the Edenic ideal of of marriage, but a oneness that reflects the very nature of the triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Hey, just like we are one, I want them to be one. Lord, I'm praying for this. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be one in us. So not just that we would have a happy circle of oneness down here on earth, but that our oneness would be experienced in this heaven and earth family. Wow! That that they may be one in us. For what purpose? That the world may believe that you sent me. Boom! You see the results there? When this oneness is happening, when you answer this prayer, God, the world will believe who I am. The world will believe that you sent me. Do you know there was one other time where Jesus prayed like this? Lord, do this that that, that you may believe that you sent me. This was actually in our, in our kindergarten, Sabbath school class in John chapter 11. Jesus is at, a, at the tomb of one of his close friends, right? It's been four days since Lazarus has been in the tomb, and he walks up to the tomb. He asks that the stone be rolled away. And he starts to pray, Lord, Father, I know that you always hear me, but I'm, I'm saying this because I want them to know that you sent me. And just as convincing of evidence as a risen life from the dead, just as convincing as Lazarus alive is revealing who Jesus is, so is the oneness of God's people on earth. I mean, you think about it. If you were at Lazarus' tomb and you had any questions about who Jesus was, don't you think you would get it at that point? (laughs) 
that guy had been there for four days, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, when there's oneness, like Godhead triune oneness amongst people, human and frail as they are, that's going to be just as convincing to who Jesus is as a dead man coming to life. And some of us who are more on the pessimistic side are, and it's just as difficult right, <laughs> to raise the dead to life as it is for God's people, just even in my household, to have triune oneness. Right? And again, God's command is a promise. I believe that Jesus' prayer is not unheard. That Jesus' prayer is something that God wants to answer. Amen. Not just for disciples back then, but for disciples today, here and now. Man, what happens? What happens if Jesus' prayer remains unanswered? Have you ever thought about that? What happens if Jesus' prayer doesn't get answered? Well, then there's no convincing evidence. There's no, the, the dead person still remains in the tomb. People still have questions about who, who Jesus is. The world remains unbelieving in Jesus. These are high, high stakes. Lord forbid that we ever get in the way of answering the prayer of Jesus. Right? So how can we then be a part of letting Jesus' prayer be answered? Community 101 This is a study that has been planned kind of on the calendar, on the docket, so to speak. But I'm telling you, I am seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit just as much as you and I, you are. We need to know the answers to this. How do we actually experience Jesus' prayer being fulfilled in my life, in my home, in my workplace, in my church? That's going to be the driving question over the next few weeks. Are there things? What are the things that make for strong knots of oneness? Not just our oneness with God, but strong knots of oneness and and self-giving love in the community of believers, in the community that I find myself in. What makes for the kind of community that reflects the very glory of God? Are there certain experiences? Are there certain attitudes? Are there actions? Are there habits that we can actually cling to and, and ask God to put into practice in our lives? That's what we want to look at. And so today, uh, we're going to start by looking at a time when I believe that Jesus' prayer in John 17 actually was answered. Alright? So by going there, and I know that, that, I don't know, in in the past, when I've looked at this passage, when I've looked at this community of faith, I've kind of said, man, well, they were doing this, they were doing this, so if I do this, and if I do that, it's going to be like a formula, or or a recipe, and boom, I'll have, you know, instant community. (laughs) I don't know if that's the case. I mean, it was a miracle. The reality is, it's a prayer of Jesus that is being answered. So it's not so much what we do, it's but what we let God do in us. All right? So here we go. Go with me to Acts chapter 2, because this, I believe, is a time when Jesus' John 17 prayer was answered. Acts chapter 2, this is the first time when the disciples are actually making disciples. Okay, so or is Jesus' prayer, you know, I pray not just for these, but for those who believe through them. Acts chapter 2, we're going to the end. 
And you, if you're familiar with the context, you remember that this is now after the resurrection of Jesus. It's been 50 days since Jesus' crucifixion. The, the disciples have been 10 days by themselves. The resurrected Christ was with the disciples for 40 days, and now they've had 10 days of, of just coming together, pressing together in the upper room. Right? You, you read about this in Acts chapter 1, in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, when the time was fully come, the Bible says. Peter starts preaching. You read his sermon, if this is the full manuscript, this is probably less than 10 minutes, but they had been praying for 10 days. (laughs) And the result? The Bible says in verse 41, if you're there, say amen. Amen. Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Then those who gladly received His word, that's speaking about Peter's message, Peter's proclamation of the gospel, those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Man, maybe I should start preaching 10-minute sermons. Alright, <laughs> and then verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church, how often? Daily, those who were being saved. I mean, we don't have to uh, dig into this too much to realize, one, this is a really awesome community, right? And two, their nets are effective in casting, right? Their mended nets were were effective in in casting. Hmm. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I believe this was an answer to the prayer of Jesus from John 17. And today what I want to look at I mean, next week we're going to actually look at those verses that we just read, you know, kind of breaking apart. What, was, what were they continuing daily in? What were they continuing steadfastly in? But today, I want to look at the experiences that led up to their capacity to continue in community. Alright, so three experiences. Three experiences that I, I, I see, maybe there are more, but three experiences that facilitated or at least paved the way for real, God-like community. You ready? You ready? Alright, so we're just going to kind of work our way backwards. So starting in verse 41, it says this, Then those who gladly received His word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So, experience number one is simply this. These people gladly received the word of God. Pretty plain, right? We see it in verse 1. They gladly received the Word of God. What's interesting is that, ver- or that verb, um, gladly received, 
It comes from one, one particular term that only Luke uses, actually, in his writing. So it's two times in the Gospel of Luke, and then five times in, in the book of Acts. Gladly received. It means, it, it's, it's a, I mean, there are times where the word receive is used, but then gladly received. It's an intensified version of receiving. It's talking about a, a warm welcome. When someone comes to town, actually two times in Luke, uh, it's Jesus coming to one, uh, one side of the shore, and the people received him gladly. They were waiting for him. Right? So when we're talking about receiving the word gladly, we're talking about a warm embrace. Not just this, this skeptical, this uh, at a distance, uh, oh, intellectual agreement. No, this is a personal embrace. This is the word for me. I want this. The community w- was made up of people who gladly received the word of God. You know, in another, in another verse, um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the Thessalonian church. And he reflects on them as being people who gladly receive the word. Notice what happens when we actually receive God's word. It says this, when you rece- So this is Paul writing to the Thessalonians. When you, Thessalonians, when you received the word of God, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also effectively does what? Which also effectively works in you who believe. When we receive, excuse me, when we receive God's word gladly, when we embrace God's word, not just as an idea, but as the word of the living God, not just as Paul's message to me or Peter's message to me or that pastor or preacher's message to me. When we receive the word as God speaking to me, there is something that happens. Paul says it effectively works in you who believe. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I can, I can pinpoint to my life where the Bible was more than just Uh, where the Bible became more than just a book that I opened up when I did my Bible homework for school. I can pinpoint a time in my life where, where I was actually reading the Bible and experiencing it as more than just ink on paper. And when I received God's Word for myself, the Word of God did a work in me. The Word of God did a work in me. When we receive the Word as from God, uh, when we receive it as the living and active Word, it does a work in us who believe. It's a work of transformation. It's a work of regeneration. Not just in regards to our relationship with God, but also in regards to our relationship with others. And just even ourselves. Just who we are as, as people. Um, for me personally, I mean, I don't have to tell you the whole story. But there were habits and tendencies of mine that were really destructive. Not just for my own life, but destructive for building trust with people and whether or not they could trust me onward. Uh, They were destructive in the sense of of how close people could come with me or or feel safe around me. And by the grace of God, I mean, it didn't happen in a day, but it happened day by day as I received the Word of God. It did a work in me who believed. I mean, some of you guys, you, you see me, and you're like, man, Godfrey's never without a smile or whatever. Man, if you were to go to my parents' garage, maybe they still have these bent, out-of-shape tennis rackets, because there was a, a version of Godfrey that was so temper tantrum, you know, like anger management needed. You know, the, the, this was an unconverted B.C. 
Godfrey, you know, before Christ, right? Um, I mean, th- this, is, this is just what God's Word does. When we behold who God is in the Word, when we receive it for ourselves, God's Word does a work in us. God's Word has the power to transform our very thoughts and motives of our hearts, right? We read about that in Hebrews chapter 4. It's, it's powerful. It's living and active, a discerner of even the thoughts and motives of our heart. Meaning that God's Word can actually transform the very tendencies that we have, the habits of thinking, those dysfunctional um, patterns in our lives. God's Word can do that. And when our knots with others are weakened, maybe we should stop to ask ourselves, have I been gladly receiving God's Word? Right? Have I been letting the Word of God do a work in me as I believe? This is not just receiving God's Word on an intellectual level. This is receiving God's Word on a transformational level. Paul says, hey, this is the, not just the Word of man, it is the Word of God. So, the community of faith that we see in Acts chapter 2, they gladly received His Word. And we think, oh man, the sermon was well received. No, they're having an experience. They're having a real experience of the living Word of God cutting to the the very thoughts and motives of their hearts and it's doing a work in them who believe. And it paved the way for community. God-like oneness. Alright, so if we're ever feeling like, man, my my knots are weak, whether in the home or at work, or, or just in your, your, your parent-child relationships, you're like, man, what, what's, where's the weakness coming from? Go ahead, be introspective. Have I been gladly receiving God's words? Have I been? All right, experience number two. Back to Acts chapter two. Experience number two is simply this. They not only gladly received the word of God, they gladly received the Son of God. <laughs> they gladly received Jesus himself. I mean, you think about this, again, just kind of going back to the times where Luke uses uh, this word, gladly received. Um, This is one of two times that it's used regarding gladly receiving items or things or a message. But generally speaking, whenever Luke is using gladly received, he's talking about receiving people. He's receiving Jesus, or Jesus is receiving the crowds. They, uh, when you know, Remember when uh, Jesus wanted to come apart and rest a while with the disciples, but sheep without a shepherd, they just kind of kept flocking towards Him. And Jesus turns around, and in Luke it says, but Jesus gladly received them. He didn't just say, okay, come on, guys. You know, that, that's not how He was. And so when we're talking about gladly receiving the Word, these people are not just gladly receiving a Word about Jesus, they're receiving Jesus Himself. They're receiving Jesus Himself. They've come to Him for salvation. And the importance of this is something we've explored. Um, you know, the, the very first of our, of our sermon series at the beginning of the year, we talked about this idea that, that this, this reality, that when we come to Jesus, He is the great center, right? He is the great center. And so drawing near to Jesus actually draws us near to each other, right? When they were receiving Jesus, when they were actually saying, no, that that person that we just crucified, that's my God, that's my Savior. When all of these people from various languages and and backgrounds and stuff, when they started to come near to Jesus, they, they eventually began to come near to one another. That's why when Jesus was praying that prayer, remember John 17, that they may be one in us. Let me just remind us. But as many, I'm sorry, oh, that's not it. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, in that prayer, John 17, uh, but as, excuse me, that they may be one in us, 
in us. In other words, that their oneness would be the direct result of being one with me. That their oneness as a community would be the direct result of them receiving me. Receiving Jesus is a big deal. That's why, here's the verse, John chapter 1, verse 12. He, he says this, But as many as received Him, what happens in their lives? As many as received Him, to them gave He power to become what? Sons of God. Daughters of God. When we receive Jesus, we're brought into a family. We're born not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. We are sons and daughters of God, even to them that believe on His name. And when I read this, I think it makes me think of another time when Jesus teach, was teaching about who the sons of God are. Maybe you remember this in Matthew. Oh man, let's go there together. I don't have it on the screen. Matthew chapter 5. So hold your, hold your finger there. I'm going to put a bookmark. Hold your finger in Acts chapter 2. Matthew chapter 5. Who else does Jesus talk about as the sons of God? Not just those who receive. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9. When you're there, say, I found it. Okay, okay. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. I'll give you a few more seconds. Matthew 5, verse 9. Red letters again. He's in the midst of the, of the, the Beatitudes. And he says this, Blessed are the who? The peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. A equals B, B equals C, A equals C. Do you, do you get it? <laughs> right? Those who receive Jesus, they're sons of God. Jesus says, you know what the sons of God are? They're peacemakers. They're bridge builders. When you take my character, when you take my identity, when, when, you, when you receive Jesus, God's kids become peacemakers. So when we feel like our sense of community and connection with others, connection with spouse, our children, our church family is weakened, when we feel unable or willing to give ourselves in our relationships and unwilling to, to sacrificially give of our time or give of our energy or give of our focus and attention, when we feel like we're unable to give, ask yourself, have I received? Have I received Jesus? Are we following today? Yeah? So, experience number one, they received the Word of God. Experience number two, they received the Son of God. And you know what, even before I get to experience number three, the reality is that I, and I don't want to be ignorant of this, but as a side note, there are times, or at least it seems like there are times, when receiving Jesus actually disconnects us from community. Have you ever found that to be true? That receiving Jesus actually it makes us feel like it's that reception, that, that new identity is actually driving a wedge in our relationships with others even the closest of our relationships. You know that song, Though no one join me, still I will follow. And so we sometimes think that receiving Jesus and following Jesus is a lonely journey. But I tell you what, that's not God's big picture plan. Go with me to another passage. So you still got a bookmark in Acts 2, right? So go to Mark. Mark chapter 10. I've been going through the Gospel of Mark in my morning devotions, and this just, man, it just grabbed my heart. And it, it resonated. Mark chapter 10 if you've ever felt like you've had to leave community in order to receive Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. If you're in the habit of underlining, maybe this is one for you. Verse 29, if you're there, say amen. 
So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, like he's, he's really wanting to settle this, like this is the truth right here. Assuredly, I say to you, uh, you know what, let me start in verse 28. <laughs> let me start in verse 28, because that's kind of where the idea starts picking up. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Right? Peter's just kind of taking, taking stock of, of where he's at in life. He's like, Look, I, I've had to leave people. I've had to leave my boats. I've had to leave my home. And then Jesus answered, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands. How many of those things are material things that he has just listed? Two, probably out of the seven, right? House and lands. But right in the middle, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children. There is no one who has left these things for my sake and the Gospels, here's the promise, verse 30, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. A hundredfold of what? The material things? Yeah, maybe. Houses, but notice what he gets to. And brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands. With that little caveat. With persecutions. It's not going to be easy, right? Mm -hmm. And in the age to come, eternal life. I want to tell you, you feel like you are receiving Jesus and you're leaving, or you're disconnecting from community. God says, I'm, I'm going to supply that need too. Amen. Yeah. I'm going to supply that need too. All right. Receive, so the experiences so far, they've received the Word of God, they've received the Son of God. Experience number three, they cultivated soft and repentant hearts. Soft and repentant hearts. Where are we getting this from? Back to Acts chapter 2, and then we'll wrap it up. Acts chapter 2. Peter has just told them, if you kind of back up a little bit more, Peter has just told them in verse 36 that the one that they crucified is actually the Christ. And in verse 37, notice how they respond to all of this, this message. Verse 37, the Bible says, Now, when they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart. Does anybody else's version say it differently besides cut to the heart? Anybody? No? I think it was the NIV that I was reading, or maybe it was the New Living Translation. It said, pierced to the heart. Pierced to the heart. The reality is that these people experienced something deep and cutting not just on an intellectual level, but just at the deepest sense of who they were and what they've just done. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the Peter and the rest of the apostles, uh, uh, you know, jaws dropped, oh, men and brethren, what shall we do? We can't go back and change course. What do we do now? Verse 38, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. I'm so grateful that this group of people didn't just say, boy, we blew it, and then walked away. Right? They wanted to know, what can we do then? Is there something we can do to repair that? They had soft hearts, soft enough to be cut. They had soft, repentant hearts. 
soft enough to turn around. Their hearts emotionally were pierced by the part they played in crucifying and piercing the Son of God. Right? Man, they, they had a part in piercing the side of Jesus. The only time that, that word for cut, cut to the heart is used, um, it's only used in description of Matthew 27 and John chapter 19 when it's talking about Jesus being pierced in the side. So they're experiencing a, a mutual piercing, so to speak. They're honest with their devastating folly, and the fact of the matter is that they are capable of doing the greatest wrong while feeling like they were in the most right. Do you realize that when you feel the most right, you're probably at your greatest potential of doing the most wrong? (laughs) And they were pierced to the heart with that. They were honest enough to say, okay, that was the time when we thought we were doing the right thing, and we did the complete opposite. These are people who are repentant, who have been broken on the rock, who know what it's like to humbly own their sin and know that they need a Savior. One of the things that I was told, um, oh, yeah, where was this? Anyways, it was like a week before getting married. <laughs> and someone said to me, you've got to learn these two golden words. I'm sorry. <laughs> he said, this is the best uh, marriage counseling you'll ever get. Just learn these two words. I'm sorry. And I tell you what, those are good words to learn. Right? But not just... I mean, in our uh, kid dynamics and stuff, you know, we, we want to encourage repentance, but sometimes that doesn't always come off, right? <laughs> I'm sorry I did this, you know. That can, that, that's not what we're looking for. It's not just the words. We're looking for a repentant heart, right? And this is not just good marriage counseling. This is good uh, parent counseling. This is good kid counseling. This is good church family counseling. And when we feel like oneness is wearing thin, in whatever circles of community you may be involved in, let's stop to ask every now and then, am I cultivating a soft and repentant heart? Do I understand that I am capable of doing wrong even when I feel right? Have I been honest with my own shortcomings? And I tell you, cultivating the habit of owning our shortcomings of acknowledging that we need Jesus and His grace, it goes a long way in being the kind of person who actually contributes to community rather than wears away at it. Why? Because living in oneness with people requires being able to give each other grace. But when we can never give grace, if we, I'm sorry, but we can never give grace if we ourselves aren't continually receiving grace. We only receive grace if we know that we need grace. We know that we're broken. Man, I'm thinking about a story when uh, I shouldn't... Okay. (laughs) There was a time recently where I just... I didn't want to admit that I was wrong. And that did not make for community. (laughs) That did not make for community. But when we're cultivating this soft and repentant heart, this reality that, okay, even if I felt right, doesn't mean that I was doing right. Then we know that we can be broken on the rock. We cultivate a soft and repentant heart. I hope this makes sense today. That these are the kinds of experiences that I think allowed for Acts chapter 2, 42 and onward. They received the word gladly. They received Jesus gladly. And they cultivated a soft and repentant heart. My question today 
you know, when you kind of review the three experiences, gladly receiving the Word of God and Jesus Himself, and then cultivating a soft, repentant heart, which of these experiences do you sense that the Spirit is drawing your attention to today? Which of these three will impact your community quotient, so to speak, most directly or most immediately? I want to actually give you a chance, maybe like 60 seconds or 90 seconds or so, to find somebody to your right or to your left. Or maybe you think better on your own and you, and you just kind of want to process this yourself. But I want to give you a chance to actually reflect on this. Find a partner if you can. Reflect together and say, which of these three do I need to hear today? Which of these three will impact my community contributions today? All right, I'll give you, I'll start the clock. Ready, set, go. <laughs> Uh, review, okay. Um, gladly received the Word of God. Gladly received Jesus Himself. Cultivated soft, repentant hearts. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Reflect. Yeah, which of these three do you feel like would make you a better community contributor? Yeah, most readily. Got 30 seconds left. All right. Whether you've been thinking this through personally or... um, kind of conversing with somebody next to you. Maybe you've identified a way that you can pray for each other or that you yourself can just bring yourself to God in prayer. Let me just close with this, that in our pursuit of community, when we're seeking a oneness that is not of this world, remember, it's it's a heaven-born oneness, that the reality is we cannot determine what others give to us. But we can choose to give of ourselves to others. I hope we're okay with that. (laughs) We cannot. We cannot determine what others give to us, but we can choose to give of ourselves. We can't make others love us as Christ loved the church, but we can choose to extend that kind of love demonstrably, tangibly, sacrificially to others. How? By receiving the Word, receiving Himself, cultivating a soft, repentant heart. How many of you today want to pray for that this week? Yeah? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, That's our desire. You know the circles in which we live, the circles in which we get anxious, the circles in which we are stretching ourselves and trying to build bridges. Um, But apart from you, we can do nothing. 
So Lord, we pray for our spheres of community. We pray for our households. We pray for our marriages. We pray for our kids. We pray for our parents. God, we pray for our neighborhoods. We pray for our workplaces. God, you know the ways in which we would love to see heaven-born oneness. And so while we cannot determine what others give to us, Lord, we pray that you would make us givers. That the love of God would be poured abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So Lord, give us these experiences. I pray that we would have the good sense to receive the word in Jesus. Do the miracle of giving us a soft heart. Take out of us the stony heart, God, that is unwilling to recognize our need for grace. Make us receivers of grace so we can be givers of it too. We pray in Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen.